Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Draft Politics. It is episode six, no spoilers. We will not be talking about the Avengers and Game of Thrones and Jon Snow riding an Iron Man dragon in the fight against the night Thanos tonight. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, EJ, and with me is Steve. Yes, hey everybody. Uh, welcome to our first podcast that's officially on iTunes. Uh, we decided we had kind of gotten the rough edges off of this and gotten our flow together, so we're going to start going a little more public. Um, so we're now on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. So uh, if you can find us there, please rate us and tell everybody what an amazing podcast we have. And if you don't like us, lie. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but also give us feedback. We'd yes. love to know what people have to say, what they think, where we're doing well, where we're not doing well, where we should go to find beer the next time, yeah. if there are topics you'd like us to cover. Any of those things. Yeah, and we're going to try to check on each one of those outlets and see what comments you, everybody's had and maybe read a few of those on the show. So uh, if you want to be podcast famous, be sure to rate us and review us. <laughs> so as always, we're going to break today's show up into things on the city and state. So Chicago, Illinois politics. We'll talk about beer a little bit and the fantastic location we're at today. Then we'll move on to national and international political news. I think it's going to be a good time today. I think we've got some fun things to talk about. But again, no spoilers. I think we have some fun things to talk about. And we'll start off, I think, in the city of Chicago, where this week, after what seems like months and months and months, the municipal elections have finally all been resolved. So the last outstanding election was the aldermanic race in the 33rd ward this week incumbent alderman deb mel conceded the race to uh rosana rodriguez sanchez who will become the new alderman of the 33rd ward and add another socialist voice to the new council yeah and that's we've had a, a number of it was like what four or five new people who are socialists being added to the council uh so that should be interesting to see how that plays out especially with a a new mayor who ha doesn't have the same powers of incumbency quite yet. So we'll see how the coalitions form and, and what actually gets done. Um, but, you know, it's worth mentioning again, you know, that was 13 votes that separated Mel from uh, Rodriguez. So, you know, your, your vote does count, it turns out. And uh, it, does. it was a very, very narrow loss there. So, And I wonder what that feels like to lose by 12 votes or 13 votes when it's possible to talk to so many people in these small elections. Right. Was there, is there that one weekend where you were a little tired and you didn't go to that one door and it made all the difference? Yeah. Whew. So speaking of the new council, the new mayor, inauguration day is May 20th. Lots of activity kind of leading up to that. Most of it's behind the scenes. You know, Lori Lightfoot has her transition team in place. There's been some chatter about that. People are really looking forward to seeing what her appointments are going to look like, so key things like the CFO and how her administration is going to take shape. So really, outside of that, it's pretty quiet on the municipal front, um, with the exception maybe of the activity around Kim Fox, who is the district attorney, who's gotten a lot of attention after the Casey Smollett case and her participating, interfering, whatever you want to call it, in that uh, and what's happened around there. So, you know, probably in the national news in a way that she'd prefer not to be. 
and it looks like that's going to turn into another challenge next year yeah. in the election. Yeah, and there's been a lot of noise. I mean, I know that the uh, FOP, uh, the, the the Chicago Police Union, um, has, doesn't seem to be a big fan of Kim Fox, and they arranged a protest. Um, there was some articles coming out this week about some of those protests being heavily attended by white supremacists. Um, you know, not necessarily any connection to the police, but that was an opportunity for them to raise their visibility at something that wasn't explicitly, you know, Nazis. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you that. take what you can get, I think. Right. Um, and so there's clearly some tension there. I've seen a lot of just sort of like noise on social media of people who don't like how Fox has been in terms of prosecutions of people and feel like she's being soft on crime and all that. And I think it's, you know, and I think you could also read that very easily as, you know, her being reasonable about certain prosecutions. And so that's all going to come up, uh, you know, the next election. That'll be part of this sort of the the on year election uh, rather than the rest of the municipal election. So we'll see what happens with that. Right on. So the other thing in the legal news, I think, at the city level is the Ed Burke trial that's been moved back to June at the request of the prosecution. I think they're still going through their exploration. They're still investigating some things. Try try to connect him to to Trump somehow. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. By any means necessary. I, I myself am really looking forward to this. I think the timing is very interesting. I was hoping that it was going to start before uh, the council was sworn in. Uh, it'll happen afterwards. I honestly think that it will put a lot of pressure on Lori Lightfoot and the rest of the council to implement new oversight rules. And so that's why I was hoping it would start ahead of time, because I wanted that momentum to already be there. Yes. yes uh, it's yes, going to yes. be a big ask of the council to put in place some of those oversight rules, even with all of the new folks. We'll see what happens. But uh, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see how those things move in parallel through city council, you know, June, July, August time frame. For sure. Um, yeah. And so we've talked a lot about, you know, in overall this podcast uh, in our first five episodes, we talked a lot about local in Chicago because of the municipal election. And we talked a lot about national. We haven't really talked as much about the state. Uh, and what we've been seeing is. Um, uh, Pritzker coming in and starting to push his agenda. And one of the things that's going to be crucial to this is uh, the notion of a fair tax uh, that he's putting together. And so what this is, it's a it's a graduated tax system or a progressive tax system um, like what we see in some neighboring states like Iowa has that um, where as you make more money, you pay a slightly higher in, uh, rate on your taxes. And uh, right now we have a flat tax, which means that a lot of your income taxes are being pushed down towards people who are poor or more middle uh, class incomes, and it gives a bit of a break to wealthier people. And so part of the theory is that if we can do that, it's going to help us to provide more revenue to the state from wealthier individuals. And um, the only issue with it, of course, and you know, unless you're against the taxation policies in the first place, is getting it passed. Right. Um, because it, it's a, it's constitutionally mandated, yes. the flat tax, which makes the whole thing more more complicated. For sure. Yes. And so uh, it looks like the votes are there to pass it in the House and Senate at this point because Democrats have a pretty strong amount of control. Uh, but then it also has to go to the voters. And so the voters have to pass it. And 60% of the people who, who vote on that specific question 
Uh, so not just of everybody who showed up to vote, but everybody who specifically marks that question, 60% have to say yes to it in order for it to pass. And right. so um, and there's been a history of otherwise successful amendments getting passed in the state house and Senate, but then failing on that line. And one of the things that's been interesting about this as it's moved through is how much horse trading there's been. So Pritzker and the Democratic leadership in the legislature have had to put things out there to incentivize the other representatives to vote for it, to come along. And so a lot of that has been in the form of things like the capital bills or a part of the capital bill that's coming out. So they need to see spending in their district. They need to have some of their projects funded. And hey, look, we know that investment needs to happen in the state. We have both seen it, I think, firsthand. It makes sense uh, that this is going on this way. And we know in the election for governor, this was a big part of both the primary and of the general election. We yeah. want to change the way we raise revenue. We need to do it as quickly as possible. A progressive tax is one way. We need to turn that into real investment into the city and the state. So, you know, barring that fair tax or progressive tax coming through, there have been some other ideas that have been floated. So certainly casino gambling and expansion of gambling for video poker and those kinds of things has been talked about. I think the city of Rockford just put together a full-page ad uh, trying to encourage Lori Lightfoot to get on board with them to help promote a casino in Rockford. It's sure. Sure. <laughs> but, hey. Yeah, uh, and I think there's uh, sports gambling is another thing that's part yeah. of that. And so, you know, and I think it's we, we have this problem right now where it's like we have these financial commitments are locked into in terms of pension uh, for state workers. So that's part of this. And we have to kind of balance that against, yeah, we have actual necessary investments uh, that we need to make in uh, state infrastructure. And so we have to balance those things. And, you know, uh, cigarette tax increases is another possibility. Right. Five uh, cents per plastic bag tax. Yep. And, of course, in Chicago, we've already got uh, an ordinance on the books about plastic bags and chains and essentially you can't have them um so that's been something that i think will continue to evolve uh over time and we'll see how many of those things get passed um it's going to be difficult i think for democrats to continue to pass r regressive taxes like that for more than the next six or eight months because after that it'll get they'll start to get hammered on those things for sure yes um, yeah, and I think probably the most interesting possibility for new revenue is going to be marijuana legalization. Um, and this is something that all of the Democratic primary candidates had signed on to, except for possibly Kennedy was a little wishy-washy on it. Surprisingly. Um, yes. Um, so we knew that if you know Pritzker won, that was going to be a, a, a key item that was on his agenda. And it looks like it's on track to be passed and for that to... Um, be on be part of the law in illinois as of next year now nothing's been passed yet it's more of just things are moving forward um there's proposed legislation i know one of the things they've been hashing out <laughs> hash um was uh the number of plants that people can uh grow at home and things like that so if they're talking those kind of minutiae you know it's clear that they're just like this is what we want to do it's just a matter of like how do we want to structure it 
right? And some of the, I think, pushback recently has been, hey, well, this bill's not fully thought out. It's moving too quickly. You haven't really considered it. But looking at the people who have made those objections, it seems like they are just trying to get leverage for something else. Um, yeah. I think it's got a full head of steam. I think it'll it'll push through. Yeah, and I think at this point we've got enough model legislation between, you know, I mean, especially Colorado and Washington that have gone through this and have had good success with it over a few years. Um, we have a good sense of, you know, how to structure this properly so that it's, you know, not, you know, increasing crime by having a lot of cash in businesses and things like that, that it's properly making sure that children aren't getting strong edibles and losing their minds. So, um, you know, I mean, in the end, it, it seems like it's heading the right direction. And I expect that that's going to pass and, you know, that that's going to be a nice source of revenue for this for the state that desperately needs it. Here's hoping. Indeed. It's about time. Yes. Um, so I think that's pretty much all we've got for state and local politics, which brings us to our beer segment. So today we are at Metropolitan, Metropolitan Brewery and Tap Room here actually in Chicago's 33rd Ward, right on the Chicago River. If you've never been here, it is absolutely the coolest it's, views. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because you, you drive up and it's like you're in kind of an industrial area and it's like, am I in the right spot? And then you see, okay, well, it's kind of paved a little different like okay it looks like a nicer setup so okay you walk in and like oh there's a sign for the tap room cool and then you go in and then you're in a building and it's like this doesn't look right and you see in the distance another sign like tap room this way right. and eventually you get in a tap room and once you get there it's just gorgeous um like right now we've got people uh what's the term for the the people who are rowing uh are they on crew i think yes they're part crew, of crew yes yes right. so they're uh we've got people uh rowing up and down the river here and uh it's a little bit of a dreary day, but it overall looks pretty nice. So Yeah, it is really a great view. I, I can't get the smile off of my face sitting here drinking a Heliostat Zwickel beer, which is really nice, uh, overlooking the Chicago River. I'm going to have to come back here when it's nicer. It looks like they'll have some outdoor space. Um, it seems like a place to go like a... Eight, nine o'clock on a nice summer night, sit outside, you know. Yeah. Maybe just a little too warm, but you don't care because it's just nice. Yeah, so um, I recommend everybody come here. What are you drinking today, Steve? I am drinking their uh, BBA Cherry Generator. It's a Doppelbock that they then barrel age with cherries, and uh, nothing makes me happier than a beer aged in a barrel, so, <laughs> uh, and it's quite delicious. It does say ABV is eight ish. Eight ish, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> Makes you feel good. So this, their beers uh, do primarily come from the German style. So we've got an alt beer, a Doppelbach, a wheat beer, uh, two Helles. Yeah, this is another yeah. place that has good lagers. Uh, the Dynamo Copper Lagers has always been one of my favorites. And uh, the Kirsch is something that I've enjoyed as well. Yeah. In the bottle I've had before several times. So if you're looking for a good German beer and a fantastic, fantastic view of the river, Metropolitan down here on Rockwell. Rockwell, yes. uh, just by Elston. Well, south of Belmont. Yep. South of Belmont, right by the river. You cannot, cannot go wrong with this. So we got our beer wrapped up. 
Uh, I guess that takes us to national discussions. So, first of all, Circus 2020. Dun, 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 dun. Election Circus 2020. Uh, we've got a Republican entering the race, apparently. Bill Weld. <laughs> Bill Weld. So, former governor of Massachusetts announced he was running and essentially said what many of the people who are listening to this probably have thought that Donald Trump has lost the ability to govern and called him, and I quote, a one-man crime wave. Sounds unquote, about right. And wants to give people a, in his words, a conservative alternative to Donald Trump. I'm all for this. Do you think he's got a chance? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you know, I got to respect anybody who's willing to throw down with Trump at this point. But the reality is, is that presidential candidates don't often get or like incumbent presidents don't often get primaried in the first place. And it never really tends to work out. I think particularly with Trump, he's got a, that very core base of supporters. You know, now maybe there is an X factor of some states that are saying we're going to not let him be on the ballot if uh, he doesn't turn over his taxes. So that can make it, you know, maybe he doesn't win enough votes to, to actually take the nomination because of that. But I don't know how any of that plays out in the primary. And there's, you know, I don't know which yeah. states are particularly affected by that at this point. Yeah, a contested primary or a contested convention or a brokered convention. There we go. That's the word yes. I'm looking for. A brokered convention on the Republican side would be shocking and fun to watch. Yes. The other thing that I wonder about is with Bill Weld or, you know, potentially Larry Hogan who is the former governor of Delaware, which is a very blue state, right? So yes. in a normal year, you would kind of look at somebody like that and say, look, he's somebody who won a statewide election in a blue state. Maybe good, he's Good viable. old school Northeast Republican. Sure, 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 sure. sure. Or uh, Kasich, right, from from Ohio, who I thought actually had he run the like best can campaign. the most plausible person oh, yeah. to make a, a run against Trump. I mean, he was certainly in the last sort of part of the election he seemed to be building some credibility he just ran out of money now does that money exist out there for him now eh, you know maybe Hard not to say. so yeah and i wonder in places with open primaries how many democratic voters will cast republican ballots to vote against trump well i mean given that we've got 20 people <laughs> <laughs> running for, I mean, you know, it depends. You know, I mean, if, uh, uh, who was the guy we brought up last week uh, for the Democrats? Um, I mean, he was so. Molten. Yeah. Molten, yeah. Molten, Molten man, just to, like, lock things down and uh, clearly ahead in the primary, maybe they'll switch over to vote for the Republicans. But, you know, he's, he's got <laughs> a little ways Moulton. to go for now. Seth Molten. Seth Molten That's right. was the name we were. Desperately searching for, yes. I, and I haven't ordered my Seth Moulton T-shirt yet. That reminds you me, you got to get on that. To, I do need to buy. While supplies last, <laughs> <laughs> I think there, I think there are plenty still available. Well, yeah, plenty of good seats still they're, available. They're, their Zazzle shop is is <laughs> cranking them out. Uh, so yeah, so the Republicans. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens with any of that. I'm not optimistic that any Republicans are going to take down Trump, but you know, good on them to try it. Um, and from there, we move on to the Democrats. So we had started into our discussion of uh, the Democratic candidates, but uh, we got interrupted by a pretzel delivery. 
they have a little setup here where you can uh, text a local delivery place and they'll uh, bring your food to you. So we got a pretzel and an assorted uh, set of dips to go with it, as is our tradition. Um, and uh, gave uh, EJ here a chance to upgrade his beer. What did you get? I got the, now I forgot, the Ironworks Alt Beer. Okay. It is uh, very nice in color, like a copper color. I haven't Good had a sip of beer. it yet. Okay, oh, well, yeah. let's try it out. Yeah, Li- let's try Live it. right now. Let's see what he thinks. He's sipping. He's tasting. How oh, that's it? beautiful. That is beautiful. It's going to really go great with this gigantic pretzel. Yes. That I will not be dipping in the there is a cup of butter. Yeah, there's a mustard sauce, a cheese that's a little separated because it was delivered, and then a butter that is a little questionable looking. But you know what? The pretzel itself is perfectly fine. <laughs> it so. is very good. Uh, I mean, I never would have thought of delivering a little cup of butter. Yes. So where were we? We were at Democratic candidates, which means talking about the beginning of Joe Biden's run. He's finally in. The Camaro is fueled up and ready to roll. In honor of this, EJ, you've got a shirt on that's... I I wore my classic Camaro t-shirt today in honor of Uncle Joe getting in, firing it up, heading out on the road. I watched his sort of announcement video, and I came away from it thinking, I don't know why you're running. I came away thinking... He's trying to sell me Colonial Pen life insurance. <laughs> did you buy some life insurance? I did after? not. Okay, I did good. not. But it, like, I'm, okay, look, he it was the you know the fu- soft background and the and the quiet tones. It was like, you know, him. I expected him to be replaced with Ed McMahon at some point. So, um, you know, and I I, I don't want to be ageist, but that's how it looked. Um, but you know, I think the the question is. You know, what is he running on? But, and it feels like so far he's largely making an emotional appeal to people. Um, we saw him go on The View and talking about uh, grief and loss with Meghan McCain. Um, you know, but how does that really translate into, you know, the values that he's going to, you know, represent as a president? Right. And I, I think his primary message so far that I've heard is, hi, I'm your version of Donald Trump if you hate Donald Trump. Yeah. If I had run in 2016, I would have won. That's the message that I'm getting. It's not that he has some new amazing thing or he's got these ideas or this vision. It is the country's in peril because of Donald Trump and I can save us from being Donald Trump. Like I can be, I can make America great again, again, or whatever it is. Yes. So you have on one hand Elizabeth Warren who can't go 25 minutes without laying out a pretty well-articulated policy plan. And Joe Biden, who's saying, like, hey, man, you can trust me to run the country. Isn't that what you really want? Right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he is making the same kind of appeal to this, like, you know, reaching back a little bit of nostalgia and, like, you know, remember when we all got along and everything was fine, and it, and it ignores the fact that none, that we've had real problems in this country before Trump showed up. Mm-hmm. Trump may sort of represent a lot of them and sort of raise them to a new level, but a lot of the concerns about economic equality and and racism and whatever those are things that have just been amplified by Trump. Um, and so, if you're somebody who thinks, "Oh, everything was fine until we elected Trump," then maybe Biden's your guy, but 
if you think that there were some other things going on, perhaps not. Yeah, and I think one of his pitfalls in asking people to sort of think back and remember when is that they may remember some of the decisions and votes that he took with his long legislative career. And that's always a difficult thing, yeah. right, when you have sort of people with no real history against people with lots of history. You can always find those things. But Joe Biden in particular, outside of the sort of handsiness and his sort of de tone-deaf response to the Me Too movement, the Anita Hill hearings that he had control over, and I guess he called Anita Hill and tried to half-apologize yeah, or he, something. Yeah, he, he's... he's called to apologize but he call, apologized for how she was treated not for how he treated her it was not an individual mea culpa i wish i hadn't done that right. it was very indirect and more about the situation he had she had been put in and there was a i saw a video today from uh pat schroeder who used to be a, a congresswoman from colorado my home state and she was talking about a lot of how anita hill was treated and how joe biden was kind of a very much the old boys network and how he had said that he was going to bring forth this testimony to the Republican on on the Senate. And so, you know, it's it's that kind of stuff which makes you question kind of where you can have a history that has problems. But if you come forward in the future and you don't fully acknowledge those problems. Right. How can we really believe that you've changed and that you're going to do better in the future? Yeah. I mean, he, from what I understand, kind of said, as, as you did. He used the passive voice. I'm sorry that this thing happened to you. Yes. Without acknowledging the fact that he ran the committee. So he had a great deal of control over yes. how it happened. And so it doesn't seem to me like a big jump to be able to say, I'm sorry that I did not do the job that I should have done. For but sure. it doesn't sound like he said And I think, that. yeah, and he's more afraid of being labeled as having screwed that up, which is already happening. Uh, and, you know, and so I think it's he's he's got to take personal ownership of it. But I think he's already missed that opportunity. I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, I he could so have too. gone on The View and said, you know, I should have said that and maybe we would have bought it. But I don't think so at this point. Yeah. And he's also, you know, very much connected to at various points in his career up to now, you know, very big corporations. So he was a part of the bills that were pressed by the credit card industry in yeah, the past. he was from Delaware, and so he was representing his donors in Delaware. And, yeah. um, you know, he was regularly referred to as the Democrat from MBNA, the uh, credit card company, because of a lot of his votes, and he was a very much a part of that bankruptcy bill, which was pretty awful. And it's, and it's interesting to see how this has played out is now he's running against Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren was the person who created the the Consumer Protection fi Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and largely a response to a lot of the policies that were set up in the bankruptcy bill, you know, giving some power back to consumers to protect them from predatory banks and such. So uh, it's kind of just got it's come full circle. And and I saw some some attempt by Biden's campaign to take credit for making sure that what Warren did actually happened, but it was really actually Harry Reid who put her on the right committees that led to what would happen the CFPB. So, yeah. yeah, so for those of you who can't see us right now, when Steve mentioned that the campaign tried to take credit for the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau actually having some teeth and Elizabeth Warren being able to put that into place, 
I rolled my eyes so hard that it hurt. I mean, I think trying to show him as a populist kind of candidate it just can't happen. He can't have it both ways, I don't think. Absolutely. And, you know, that combined with some of the other sort of pre-announcement missteps really make it yeah, hard Stacey for me to Abrams know. as his VP or whatever, which is right. what he did with Elizabeth Warren in 2016. Right, we're going to half float a balloon and then say we didn't float the balloon and then see where it goes. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating right now about the crop of Democratic candidates is that the two people who are polling the best... You know, and maybe as an aside, I think, generally speaking, polling at this point is very hard to interpret, right? Because we have 20-some-odd people yeah. in the race. And, and we have not had a debate yet, so we have—I mean, we've seen some candidate forums, and we'll talk a little bit about that, yeah. but, yeah. Oh, but also, name recognition is— vastly different across the spectrum so you know one person could say you know joe biden is polling at 25 percent and that's the highest percentage so he's doing the best in the polls somebody else could say well mayor pete boot edge edge boot edge edge <laughs> is polling at 14 percent but he only has 25 percent name recognition so you could extrapolate that out and say if he had better name recognition, he'd actually be that pulling That means at he will have 54% <laughs> approval. <laughs> right. Because name, I don't know. The, right. it's, all, it's all guesswork at this point. And, you know, it's always important to remember, like, back in, you know, 2008 when Obama was first running, it was uh, Joe Lieberman who had huge approval ratings. And everybody's like, oh, he's going to win. No. <laughs> And, you know, some relatively unknown senator from Illinois ended up clobbering him. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, we'll see how this plays out. I think it's really going to be interesting. End of June, uh, we're expecting there will be two debate nights um, as they sort of have to separate out 20 candidates into two different pools. Um, so we'll see how that, that goes. But uh, once we see that happen, I think we'll have a much better sense of who's really a contender at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and it will be Seth Moulton. <laughs> It'll be Seth Moulton. I'm telling you, Moulton 2020. So, you know, the interesting thing to me is that the Democratic Party has never been, to the best of my knowledge or understanding, more diverse. Or I think acknowledging, as acknowledging of its diversity. Absolutely. And if we look at 2018, the sheer diversity of the people who were elected women, women of color, we're all across the map. It, it was, you know, for me, amazing. It was, it was fantastic. But the top two people in the polls, see previous footnote and you know, disclaimer, are two old white guys. For sure. And, again, a poll, but one that I found very interesting, maybe disheartening, was that they said, okay, well, who's your number one pick? People said, oh, Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. And they said, who's your number two pick? And all the Joe Biden people said, oh, Bernie Sanders. And all the Bernie Sanders people said, oh, Joe Biden. So these are folks who are completely different on the policy spectrum. But 
they both have similar name recognition. And so I think it's like one of those things to take with a grain of salt is if I'm not really paying attention to what's going on and who all these candidates are and my choices, oh, I remember Biden. I remember Bernie. So he's my number one because I really liked him when he was with Obama or he's my number one because I liked him when he was fighting against Hillary or whatever. And so it's it comes back to the same thing. Like, it's hard to know. It would be shocking to me at this point in time to see the Democratic Party represented by an old white guy when, you know, diversity of our candidates at the congressional level has been bigger than ever. And uh, inspiringly oh, bigger sure. than ever. And for sure. It would be very, very disappointing to me if the ticket wasn't representative of the people whom we're trying to represent. And... Well, you know, just throw Stacey Abrams on a ticket, you're good to go. If you couldn't hear my eye roll there, let me tell you. It was, it she was still loud. might run, right? She still might run. She might. Herself, which I think, again, she shouldn't, but... No, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that she's she's firmly in the fight in Georgia. And I think that there's if, if a lot of what she's doing um, to reform the way elections happen in Georgia pans out, you, you see the possibility of a senator from Georgia who is a Democrat and that's shifting dramatically the, the, the scope of what we're talking about. Um, you know, we don't we haven't talked a lot about the Senate races at this point because there's not really a lot to talk about. But fundamentally, when we get through 2020, if you get a Democratic president and they don't get the Senate, you've got Mitch McConnell stopping literally everything. And so he wouldn't do that. Right. Because he believes in our in our founding principles and the institutions of government and and Russian oligarch money. Oh, wait. Uh, Well, it's an aluminum. It's jobs. It's all about jobs. It's all about the jobs. That's right. He just cares about his constituents. So. People talk about this concept of electability. And I, I, I want to bring it up partially because if you've listened to the podcasts, you'll hear me time and time again talking about the language of politics and how we as voters and the media talks about people and issues in politics and what that means to the overall landscape how how we're influencing each other how the media influences us because of it and this is a concept this concept of electability that i think is very important because it gets in people's heads that some people are more or less electable than someone else so somebody will come on tv and you know just like us we're doing this once a week for an hour but there are people who have to come up with material every day on, you know, MSNBC or Fox News or NBC News, any number of outlets, and they've got to come up with things to say. And they'll talk about electability as if it's a thing. They'll say, well, you know, Mayor Pete's not electable because he's too young or he's openly gay or, you know, he's from Indiana and he's got no he, he's real He's too experience. white. Wait, no, that's not a... Funny, they'll thing. never say that. Right? Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's frustrating because the only way to determine electability is somebody winning an election. Um, and I think that it's a little more aggressively a problem right now because everybody is so freaked out that Trump won. And so yeah. we've got a lot of people thinking about, we got to find somebody who can beat Trump. we got to find somebody who can beat Trump. And it's like, I'm, 
as much as I'm worried about 2020 and as much as I'm upset with how 2016 ran, I feel like it's going to be okay. Like, if we don't nominate somebody who's being actively investigated by the FBI and knows to do a good GOTV effort in the North Midwest, we're okay. And so we need to back that down and stop thinking, oh, well, we got we to gotta elect a, a, a white guy to, to run things because right. that's what people will vote for. It's like, no, people will vote for somebody who is authentic and credible and energizing. And Obama blew the doors off because he was that. Um, and I think that you're in a similar situation now. You've got Trump. I don't think there's a lot of sense of we got to stick with this horse. Like, yeah, I there's good no i don't think so either i it, it's just this idea that you know the fear as you kind of said that we'll put somebody up the democrats will put somebody up who is going to lose or have too many ways for donald trump to attack them i i don't know i mean it, at the end of the day i think we're not going after trump's base there's not a big reason to try to attack trump personally or be the candidate who says I'm the only person who can beat Donald Trump. We want to have a candidate who says, I'm the person who can help all of the people who have been consistently left behind and were left behind again when Trump was elected. Yeah. Unless we forget, 2016 was largely run as a anti-Trump campaign. Didn't really pan out. So having somebody who has, can realistically speak to how they are going to help people how they're going to help the economy, how they're going to help on health care, I think is probably the biggest one. I think that's more important than an anti-Trump message because the anti-Trump message will be there. It's mm -hmm. understood. Everybody knows yeah. that's in play. And nobody's going to be sitting at home going, well, you know, maybe another four years of Trump will finally bring about the socialist revolution I've been craving. That's not a thing, okay? No, that's true. And at no point is, gonna, is somebody going to say, you know, I'd vote for him, but I think he's just a little too soft on Trump. Right. But can we put electability in the same FU bucket that collusion has gone into? Right. It's a distraction term. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't help forward the discussion or the debate. Yes. And it adds an extra layer of likely misogyny to it that doesn't exist with collusion. So it's even worse. There you go. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then continuing from there, um, there was the She the People Forum, um, where a lot of the Democratic candidates uh, were up there. It was a, an interesting forum in that it was largely represented by women of color. Um, and so it was interesting to see how all the different candidates reacted to that and how they did. Uh, Warren and Harris did particularly well in that environment. Uh, Harris uses a, a, a place to launch a, uh, another policy proposal, like she does. Uh, targeting uh, maternal mortality rates amongst black women. And, um, and what we found is, and she talked a bit about this, is that all the statistics show that when you account for wealth and any sort of other sort of factors, black women have higher mortality rates when giving birth, because, and it's strictly a racial issue. And so what she wanted to do was uh, set up a system where hospitals would get more or less money depending on how they address that. And we already have a framework for this. Um, the Center for Medicare Services, CMS, uh, requires hospitals to submit quality information to them. They like have to check, like, did they give antibiotics before surgeries and, and various things like that? And they will ding them if they don't perform the right, 
you know, basically what is sort of best practice for those hospitals. And so we can use that same sort of structure, and that seems to be what she's hinting at. Um, you know, the details on this will be ma will matter. Um, we don't want to end up with, you know, a hospital that is struggling, kind of going to a death spiral because they happen to have a large proportion of black women giving birth there. Um, so we have to account for that, but it seems like a, a good proposal. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's pandering in any way. It seems like something that we should be doing. Um, uh, on the other hand, Sanders at the same forum uh, ended up getting booed. Uh, he and it was some of the discussion of this has been a little bit overheated, but he was asked about kind of what he's going to do to like lead against white supremacy if he's president, and he gave us a very meandering answer, and then went went to talk about being with Martin Luther King and, and his support for <laughs> Jesse Jackson. And it was like, it had a very much a, some of my best protests are for black people kind of vibe. And it was a little, it came off a little tone deaf. Really? Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. So, you know, and the thing of it is, there's plenty of people, uh, you know, who, who support Sanders, people of color who think he's good. And I think overall, I think he would be good for everybody in, in a lot of his positions, but he's been really struggling to communicate and connect with people of color, and you know that became evident in that forum. So, well, and I think we need to acknowledge that the majority of the base of Democratic voters are people of color. They're certainly the most reliable voting demographic. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, kind of moving on from 2020. I mean, we're not going to move on from 2020. Probably not even in 2021. But <laughs> right, we'll be well into 2024 before we move on from 2020. Absolutely. Actually, no, if it all goes well, we'll be like, 22 is cool. We won't ever talk about 2020 or 2016 again. How nice would that be? <laughs> It'll be great to be doing this podcast from Canada. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> following up on the events that have happened over the last couple of weeks with the release of the Mueller report, our Attorney General, your Attorney General, my Attorney General Barr, the Democrats would like to talk, talk to him. We're wasting away again in Subpoenaville. Yeah, so uh, he's, he's not been subpoenaed at this point. There's an agreement to have him come and speak. There's been some back and forth about they wanted to have some staffers uh, ask him questions who are attorneys, um, and he's been resistant to that. I don't know why an attorney would be having a problem with another attorney asking him questions, but whatever. Um, and so it's interesting, is, and we've, there's other things not related to Barr that are requests that Congress has made that is getting blocked. We've talked about Trump's tax returns, mm -hmm. things like that. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because there's only so many tools available to Congress in order to get that information. Yeah, for sure. And and look, you know, to be fair, again, this isn't just about Barr. Barr is, I think, one of the more interesting cases because he's the attorney general and supposed to uphold the law above all else. But <laughs> every attempt at oversight by the Congress is being met with stonewalling in one way or another. Yeah. And yeah. it all feels like, at the very least, just trying to run out the clock yeah. so it doesn't become a problem before the election. And, and that could very well happen, right? So, so what's, the, what's the escalation path here? So we say, like, hey, Democrats are, 
we'd like you to come speak to the committee and they yeah so in a perfect world it's like hey can you come talk to the committee and he's like cool let's do that and they talk to he talks to the committee and everybody's happy um the next level up from that is a subpoena which has at some level some enforcement of law that he he has to show up and it is well within congress's purview to do that but of course how do you enforce that right because so he's now, just going to give him the new phone who dis. Right, when right, they ask exactly. Him to come and send him the subpoena. I don't know who this is. So at that point, they can go through the courts. They can, uh, you know, get a court ruling, and court will say, hey, yeah, you have to show up, and then he shows up. But that takes time. And there was, last time this happened, it took like a year and a half for that to all grind through. By the time it got around, you know, there wasn't, they didn't even show up. I mean, it's like it didn't matter at that point. Um, you know, and considering we're in, you know, April of 2019. I was just doing the math. Yes. Halloween. We could have a Halloween right before the election. Well, that might work out then. On Halloween, they'll come in. Right. David S. Pumpkins will be there. It'll be fantastic. Get, get out my uh, William Barr Halloween costume. Yeah. It's and quite I, scary. I do think that that's, that appears to be the strategy. We will... Put as little information out in the public domain as possible because all information is bad. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's a political fight as far as they're concerned. And so anything they can do to win that is fine. Um, you know, and, the, and Congress does have a, an ability to escalate this another level, which the sergeant at arms of, of the Congress has the ability to actually do some law enforcement, essentially. Like, they can go and bring guys with guns to go arrest somebody. So they can say, if somebody doesn't show up for a subpoena, they can go drag them into Congress and make them testify. The problem here is that William Barr is guarded by the FBI. So it's not like, you know, we're not going to get a Tarantino-esque shootout between the Sergeant-at-Arms and the FBI. And, and honestly, I don't see anybody in this Congress being of a mind to push it to that extent. Like, right. I don't see Pelosi signing off on the go arrest bar plan nancy pelosi yes nancy pelosi because we only ever use one of her names it's true i don't understand it <laughs> but nobody uses her first name so i think you're right that nobody will stand up to him and i think there's some political calculus that goes on here similar to the discussions about impeachment where what can the democratic congress do that doesn't feel like it's giving trump some kind of ammunition or sort of political currency with his base. Now, of course, I would say that's a, a silly argument because he doesn't need any currency with his, right. his base. Right, he'll just make shit up. It's fine. Yeah, he, and he's just going to lie about it. Anyway. He's going to run on racist immigration policies. That's how he will do. And, and that it's all a witch hunt and it's all made up and it's all fake right. news. And he has no problem making things up. I mean, he so was like, what was, well what was the one the this week of like, um, that they take newborn babies and execute them. And right. Like, uh, it's just, he's just gross. But I think I've said that before. Uh. So, yeah, so that's William Barr. Uh, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a train wreck, but, you know, he's, but he's our attorney general, so he what is. are you going to do? A and I would like to thank him publicly for ensuring that we have material every week to talk about because they'll drag it out. Oh, yeah. We'll have something to talk about every week. For sure. Also, uh, you know, we heard some other interesting things this week, not about that specifically, but, you know, sort of filtering out from 
information from the Mueller report, and that was about access to polling data. So, you know, we've talked, everybody's talked about sort of the idea of coordination between the campaign and Russia or other foreign actors. But underlying that, there were sort of independent actions from Russians that we haven't talked as much about and you don't hear as much about. And those are actually the things where, you know, people have been indicted for, right? So this week we heard about Russian hackers who had gained access to the Florida systems that hold all of the vo voter roll data. And they were able actually in a position to change that data if they needed to. And they did that by impersonating a vendor. So, you know, Florida shares information with their voting machine vendor. They were able to impersonate that vendor and essentially gain unfettered access to this data. And Florida didn't find out until after the election. So how many people potentially were showing up, going to vote, and they're like, we don't have a record of you because Vladimir decided that you aren't going to be on our voter rolls? I mean, I mean that is a real question. I, I think what is surprising about this is that, first of all, Marco Rubio brought it up, and he was talking about it. Right. So there you go. That is a Republican R who's talking credit about election him. security. Yeah. I, I don't give him a lot of credit, but I do. Every article I saw about this, they had a picture of him voting, and he, he was standing at the voting booth and sort of turned around like he had been caught looking at adult material on his iPad at the airport. I mean, he looked very guilty standing at the vo voting booth, well, probably you know, because he was voting for himself. Well, if you're going to vote Republican, you should feel a little right. shame. So I suppose it makes sense. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, those of you listening to the podcast who have voted Republican, please, please let please us know. <laughs> you and can give us that one star vote. We, yeah, we won't complain. That one star. But... You know, sort of tongue out of cheek here. That is sort of in contrast to what we heard from Bridget Nielsen this week, and or reports about Bridget Nielsen, who said, "Hey, I want to. I'm worried about election security in 2020. Let's do something about this." And she was told, "Don't bring it up to Trump. He doesn't want to hear it. Downplay it. Don't do anything about it." And I think that's the the thing I'm most concerned about is. Like, 2016 happened. It seems like, for the most part, other than, like, the DNC email leaks, that a lot of the damage wasn't that severe. Like, they didn't get into election systems. They didn't do any of that kind of stuff, at least in a way that seems to have altered things. We There may be, but we don't. We haven't seen anything conclusively saying one way or the other. <coughs> but we haven't we're seen going anything in. that says they've changed votes. Yeah. But. but now we're going to 2020, and we already had 2018, where we don't know what they're doing. And we've consistently seen Trump resist any efforts to find out what they're doing and to put those roadblocks in place and to help right. states make sure that their systems are secure. And maybe that's, I mean, you could generously say, oh, well, he just doesn't like the politics of it because it looks bad because it makes it seem like it's a Russia thing making him win and he doesn't like that. Or it could be he's working with Vladimir Putin. I mean, so neither one of those looks particularly good. No, no, no. And I, part of me is... Wondering, well, is this a don't bring it up to Donald Trump because then you could just kind of do it and you won't notice because he doesn't notice? Right. Or is it a truly don't do anything about it because if he hears about it, he's going to shut it down. He's going to be angry. And I, I do worry that, you know, the systems aren't secure. You and I are both, both in software and IT, and we know a little bit about 
the general insecurity of not well-funded systems. And in general, state governments don't spend a lot of money on things that they don't absolutely have to spend money on. And this is one of those things that they probably aren't thinking they had right. to. It's every every four years, every two years that somebody's showing up and dealing with this. And, you know, as long as the experience isn't frustrating to them, are they really going to pay attention to the fact that there's no paper trail, et cetera, et cetera? You know, and so it's easy to short shrift it. So another election news. We just had a court ru ruling from a federal court, a three-judge panel in Michigan, uh, three judges appointed by different presidents of different parties, uh, saying that the uh, state congressional maps inside of Michigan were all uh, gerrymandered to the point where they were causing undue harm and they needed to be redrawn immediately. And just to give you a little context to this, like you may think, oh, well, you know, maybe they got a little bias and there's just, there's just some nuance here that they're... No, no, no. You've got a quote from Jack Daly, who was Republican congressional aide at the time, saying it was a glorious... W in a glorious... I don't remember the beginning of this, but in a glorious way that makes it easier to cram all the Dem garbage in Wayne, Washtenaw, Oakland, and Macomb counties into only four districts. Like, that's, that's pretty out there and bold. Yeah. And, you know... Not subtle. And Not I'm glad Republicans Daly. have been fairly consistent in being bold about their terribleness. Uh, certainly, as far as court re records go, it's always helpful. But, man, so now uh, that's been overturned. And by August 1st, they're going to have to have a new set of boundaries put in place right? Uh, by current Democratic governor. Gretchen uh, Whitmer. Yeah. Elected last year. Yep. So she'll have to propose them. They have to get approved. I think that they actually have to run some special elections. So the other interesting thing about this is that Michigan last year passed a voters, not politicians law that established a nonpartisan commission that is supposed to then draw the maps. So they need to have a map for this. You know, right now they need to redo the current one. Then they'll have a map for 2020. And then in 2021, they'll have another map. So that's going to be three maps in four years. Right. So you could be showing up to your polls and your polling place may change. You, who you're voting for may change because they're changing all the districting. So it's going to be a little jarring if you're a, you know, a voter in, in Michigan. Um, but, you know, all of this is ultimately going in the direction of making the districts better represent the people who live there. And right. Michigan has been one of the more gerrymandered uh, places where it's like you have a majority of Democrats voting and yet somehow you end up with a, a vast majority of Republicans representing people. Um, you know, obviously it doesn't affect presidential elections, but it's, you know, it's state representation and and federal representation in, in the in Congress that's affected by it. Right. And when we think about what issues will impact federal elections and the election for president, some of those are controlled by those state legislatures. So, for instance, do felons get to vote? Or how do people lose and regain their right to vote? So, you know, we saw in Florida, you know, in theory, one could get their, vote, their voting rights back after they left prison, but then they had to go through a process of being interviewed by a panel, and that could take years and years and years, and under Republican administrations and under Democratic ones, it was much shorter. So... It's really important that we keep these things in mind because of the state laws that 
restrict access to voting rights and that shape access to voting rights. It's not just the maps. It is all of the rules and regulations and the logistics around how the elections are run that influences the final turnout. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think... I mean, really, the right solution to that is that having an independent commission that's setting those boundaries, so that you end up in a situation where it becomes a self-reinforcing system where you get a certain party into office, that party changes the rules to keep them in office, and it becomes persistent. I mean, you know, we have a certain degree of gerrymandering here in Illinois as well, but, you know, it's... it. In, our, in Illinois, it's a little weird in that it's not so much about expanding their power base as much as it's just keeping them in elected off. So it's not, it'll be, hey, I'm going to gerrymander this so that this particular person always wins, rather than saying we're going to try to balance it in terms of Democrats versus Republicans. Right. And especially but none of around, it's good. No, none of it's good. Well, I don't know. I, again, it's probably a discussion for another time, but there is something to be said for potentially looking at communities and saying you know we would like a community of we would like to make sure that say the latinx community has a representative and so we're going to draw a weird district to allow that that is different than saying we want to make sure that all of the democrats are in one place so there is as little representation in a party as possible anyway yeah, I mean, that's the core of it is making sure that there is that the people are being represented by candidates who are in line with their interests as best you can. So uh, close to Chicago. In my actually where I was born, Indianapolis. NRA had their yearly convention. There were some some fireworks. First of all, it's important to note that at the NRA convention, guns are not allowed because of safety concerns. Well, that's weird. It is weird. It I mean, is how, weird. how are you going to stop the bad guy with a gun if no, none of the good guys have guns? I don't understand. Maybe they're all bad guys. Hmm. I, don't, I don't believe that. Very I don't strange. think that's true. But it, is, it seems odd. It seems yes. odd to me. I, maybe nobody's pointed out the irony to them, but I, yeah. I digress. Well, yeah, we'll let it go. That's fine. Um, yeah, so... Anyhow, they've been. There's been. You've heard probably the talk about Russia funneling money to NRA. That's one thing, but this is a whole lot of infighting drama within the NRA. Um, Oliver North of the Iran Contra scandal has been uh, a part of the NRA and has apparently been extorting Wayne Lapierre, saying that he would send information about him to the board of the NRA to undermine him and you know trying to manipulate him. Also, Oliver North works for the main PR firm, uh, Ackerman McQueen. He's got a million-dollar contract right, with them. Right, So clear conflict of interest. Um, and Ackerman McQueen is the, one of the people, or one of the main entities responsible for a lot of that NRA just crazy messaging that they've had, right. where it's well, all they, like, they're all coming to kill us, and we need our guns to protect freedom. And Well, I think... Uh, Ackerman McQueen runs NRA TV. Yes. So, and that's where Oliver North's contract comes from. And for those of you who aren't as old as we are, Oliver North was at the center of a scandal back in the 80s where essentially 
hostages were being traded for money that was being given to buy guns. So it was, it was a very shady kind of black ops kind of thing um, involving Iran and rebels in South America. And there were hearings about this. Oliver North was sort of front and center and took the fall, some people said, for others. Um, really highly visible scandal in the 1980s that lots of people came away from unscathed, but not Oliver North. He's a former Marine general, colonel, colonel, something. I don't know. Clearly a Marine, though. Um, and so it was interesting to see him pop up at the NRA last year. And now the snake eating itself, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, my hope is either the NRA is just sort of driven out of existence by this, or at the very least, uh, it it leads to some changes in how they approach uh, their interaction with our political system, and uh, you know we'll kind of see how that plays out. Right. But it's and they're being sued now, right? So there's a lawsuit yeah. in New York about their contributions and whatnot. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes, and we're going to cover that uh, for Schadenfreude reasons. If absolutely. Not us. That should be very, fun. very enjoyable. Yes. Uh, and we got a little follow up on Boeing, uh, the the 737 MAX problems. Uh, they have apparently there was multiple calls from uh, employees of Boeing to the FAA after the crash I of Ethiopia Air's uh, plane. And none of that seemed to have bubbled up like so the FAA is being told about this, but it's not clear like when that happened versus when any actual action was taken. And I know, like, even the day that they finally shut it down, Trump was saying, oh, it's all fine. So all good. Somebody forgot to give him that memo, apparently. Or they gave him it, and it didn't have enough pretty pictures in I, it. I so he didn't say. read it. <laughs> <laughs> it had more than eight words. He yes. didn't, didn't bother reading it. We've also heard some interesting reporting, and I would encourage people who are interested in this to go out and, and listen for some of this. I think The Daily did a really interesting piece on this about the plant in South Carolina that builds the 787, the Dreamliner. So this was the first time that Boeing built planes outside of Seattle or the greater they, they, Seattle. They do in St. Louis as well, I think. But yeah, but it was like South Carolina was like a new plant. Yeah, just to build the 787, which, you know, so Boeing put a big bet on with the 787 as a way, you know, to to move into a new market at the same time that Airbus was building the A380. They went to the 787, which is smaller and lighter and can go and just a lot of far. focus on fuel efficiency and right. things like that. Composite materials. So they opened a plant in South Carolina. They brought some people in from Washington to sort of transplant or seed the culture. And we've heard lots of sort of troubling stories come out of the, out of the plant uh, in terms of foreign debris being found. Yes, uh, FOD, foreign object debris, which could be anything from, you know, metal shavings from drilling into something and not cleaning it up properly that might, you know, get in your electrical equipment and cause problems, all the way to apparently they found a ladder in the tail of a 787, which is kind of remarkable to me that, like, you have, like, that much sort of free space in the airplane's tail <laughs> to have a whole ladder. I mean, I'm sure it was not a big ladder. Right. But, but still. Yeah. And how do you leave the ladder there? Right. Like, did somebody, like, wait, where did the ladder go? 
Oh, I left it in the plane. Oh, Bill left the ladder in the plane tail again. Oh. Well, they were talking, uh, one person in particular who was in the quality assurance area was saying they were having interesting situations where parts that were marked as do not use because they're defective were disappearing from the sort of graveyard of parts, presumably then being put on planes. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, Steve's oh chuckling about this. <laughs> By the way, I, I, should, I should give some context to this. I'm a little bit of a nervous flyer. Um, so, so any of this stuff, I'm just like getting just a little heartburn just hearing it. Right. So I wasn't a nervous flyer. <laughs> now you are. <laughs> but one of my primary routes is triple sevens, seven eighty seven. Yeah, are the the planes that they typically fly on it. Well, the triple sevens, so you're probably probably fine. okay. Seventies, right. and, and honestly, I've flown on a couple seventy sevens, and they're lovely planes. Oh, they are. You know, whether you have a ladder in the tail or not. You know, I, it's a, a little rattly back I, there. I flew in first class that one time, and so I didn't get the ladder upgrade, but, you know. <laughs> I did I did ask for the extra metal shavings in right. my in-flight meal. It does improve the taste of it, everybody. It, it does. It's a festive as well. So, again, some interesting things there. And, and I think the important thing for me and the reason I'm interested in talking about it isn't just that we've talked about it before, but also... I feel like every incident like this, every incident where we see government not doing the things that it should be doing provides some ammunition for people who want less government to say, look, government doesn't yeah. do the things it's supposed to do. We'll yeah. not fund it. There was a they're uh, screwing up. There was a study I heard about um, where they looked at uh, voting habits of Medicaid recipients. And what they found was that people who received Medicaid were less likely to vote. And so they're like, oh, well, maybe because they're poor and they have trouble getting out to vote because da-da-da-da. Like, no, no. What it turns out is that they had an experience with Medicaid and it convinced them that the government couldn't do things very effectively and it was a disaster. And so it turned them off from voting. And so we have this sort of persistent system of, Government is undermined by people who say the government can't do anything, thus proving their point, right? And thus driving their electoral strategy. Oh. So, yay! <laughs> so to finish off today, to finish off today, a couple things on the international stage. So one is the largest democratic election in the world is going on right now in India, where they have something like. 900 million eligible voters. It is a tremendously large number. Yes. It happens over a week because they have to do it in waves to secure the election. And there's that story of, you know, having a polling place for that one person out in, you know, the rainforest someplace because there is a law that says you have to have a polling location within a certain distance of where you live. So it's Something to think about right now, that the largest democratic election is happening right now. There's no question there about how do we make it easier for people to vote or harder for people to vote. They're doing it right now because it's that important. The other thing I'd like to point out is an election recently uh, that I thought was quite interesting. You know, people around the world, I think, in 2016 and the last couple of years have looked at the United States and said, well, they elected somebody without a, any experience who was on a TV show. It's a terrible idea. Except in the Ukraine. Right. Where they said, 
wait a minute. This guy has literally played a president on TV for the last number of years, and he was just elected by a landslide in the Ukraine. So Ukraine's new president, all of his experience is on TV. Fascinating stuff. For sure. Well, you know, and I think it's like if you're going to elect somebody who played, who, who is like a, a candidate, uh, or if you're going to elect somebody from TV, somebody who played a president on TV is the right way to go. Right. I mean, you know, you think about it, West Wing, Martin Sheen. Sure, I'd have liked been that bad. Yeah. I'd have done that. But, you know, Donald Trump did not play president. He also played. True. He played asshole CEO. And so <laughs> that's what we've gotten. Wait a minute. You're right. Pretty consistent. That's pretty consistent. Everybody on TV is just like that in real life. Remember that, people. <laughs> TV is not fake. Well, I think that brings us to the end of Episode 6. As promised, no spoilers were given out during today's episode. We've led you on a wild we tour. held the door. <laughs> Had to do it. Had to do it. Uh, but yes, uh, yeah. Thank you for tuning in again. Uh, to we're up to ninety people, maybe. It's it's hard to tell from we've actually uh, as we added to iTunes and all that, our numbers went up. But we don't know if that translates to people actually listening. So if you are actually listening, uh, let us know on Facebook. Um, on uh, do a review for us. Rate us on iTunes, on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find us. That'd be great. And actually, if you do hear us on Stitcher, leave a comment. We'll message you to tell us the ne- to tell you the next bar we're going to be at, and I'll buy you a beer personally. But only on Stitcher. Only on Stitcher. Okay, that's interesting. We'll see how that I, goes. I, I, I'm really curious to know how many people. Okay. Are on we'll Stitcher. see how that plays out. I'm I'm happy to do it. All right. It could get expensive. That's true. It'll, it'll just cut into my presidential T-shirt fund. That's fine. Maybe we'll do it. We'll do a little interview segment with you. See see how you <laughs> how what you think about all this craziness going on is so. uh, working out for you. Yes. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. All right. Take care, everybody.